Hello, I'm Kyle Johnson, and this is What Are You Reading? A podcast devoted to books and the perspectives of their readers. Today, I'm featuring some notes on a book I finished recently. More specifically, this episode is a part essay, part review of the short story, The Way We Live Now, from Debriefing, Susan Sontag's collection of short stories. Hope you enjoy hearing my thoughts. Susan Sontag once said in an interview that while the living room is most appropriate for essay writing, short stories should be written in the bedroom. On the surface, this distinction may sound as if she was describing her short stories as more intimate when compared alongside the more famous essays. And it's true, she approached the subject matter of her essays analytically, almost as a series of public exegeses or arguments, rather than as a narrative or fictional etude. Her stance on short story writing makes sense in the larger context of her collected fictional works, which do feature more personal, quiet narratives about the ambiguities of a particular lived experience. I think of the bedroom, after all, as a place where questions about life's mysteries seem to spring up from nowhere, a place where it's very common to wake in the middle of many nights, pondering the cosmos, where it all came from, if any of it really matters, and if it doesn't matter, why I spend so much time thinking about drudgeries over things that most would agree are immeasurable or invaluable, even if we are just a blip in the existence of the universe. In addition to the immediacy of her writing's sophisticated, though at times improvisatory quality, Part of why I love Sontag's short stories is because they're a response to still applicable cultural ills, reflections on the effects of power, and witnessings of the vulnerabilities and uncertainties of society. Many of the stories could be considered experimental, non-linear fiction that grapples with the same ideas and ideals found in her critical theory. At the same time, her tone and style feel as personal as a diarist or a memoirist. In Pilgrimage, for example, Sontag fictionalized her own embarrassing childhood experience of meeting Thomas Mann in his home for tea and discussion of The Magic Mountain, a novel according to the story an early teenage Sontag had read numerous times and loved. Other stories allow for a riffing on and personification of her beliefs about contemporary culture. Some also became speculative imaginings of how a given social construct would fare in later decades. American Spirits is a satire on the role of women in society, while The Dummy provides commentary on the family, particularly the role of men in a family of the future. Although Debriefing is both the title of her book of collected stories published posthumously and a story within the collection itself, I can't help but to feel that the set's final story, The Way We Live Now, is most deserving of the titular tale. It's an account of a hospitalized man that's told from the shifting perspectives of individuals within his group of friends, Capitalizing on the technique of free association, Sontag utilizes the run-on sentence in a way that creates a spiral of words and clauses. Here are the opening lines. At first he was just losing weight. He felt only a little ill, 
Max said to Ellen, and he didn't call for an appointment with his doctor, according to Greg, because he was managing to keep on working at more or less the same rhythm, but he did stop smoking, Tanya pointed out, which suggests he was frightened, but also that he wanted, even more than he knew, to be healthy, or healthier, or maybe just to gain back a few pounds, said Orson, for he told her, Tanya went on, that he expected to be climbing the walls. Isn't that what people say? and found, to his surprise, that he didn't miss cigarettes at all and reveled in the sensation of his lungs being ache-free for the first time in years. The entire story is a single long paragraph, which on one hand puts it in a literary continuum of very gutsy experimental writing, most recently seen in Lucy Ellman's critically lauded book, Duck's Newburyport a 1,040-page novel that has a total of one period after the final word of the book. It's a style that is undoubtedly exhausting as a reader. The way we live now is 20 pages, but at times feels double that length. Elements of short story form that are usually introduced gradually throughout a narrative are foregrounded from the start. Just in the first three pages, for example, more than 20 recurring characters are named. None of these characters are developed, they're mere conduits of information about and reactions toward an unnamed friend who's suffering in the hospital from an unnamed disease, in addition to that disease's effects on everyday life. Here's a quote from the story. Everybody is worried about everybody now. That seems to be the way we live, the way we live now, end quote. The story itself is simple but the way it's told is not. Much of the character's unease around their friend's condition and their own situation is embodied through stylistic decisions that 35 years after being written still feel current, if not outright progressive. Because of the perpetual fragmentation of conversations and impartations throughout the story, it's often difficult to track which character believes what and how exactly each is related to the protagonist, the unnamed hospitalized man, and to one another. An impersonal third-person narrator also rarely chooses to hone in on the patient's own perspective, since information that the reader receives is filtered through the gaze of individuals within his group of friends. Published in The New Yorker in 1986, It's very evident that the disease Sontag chose not to name in The Way We Live Now was HIV-AIDS. There are hints throughout the story. For example, one character puts himself in charge of, quote, keeping the mother in Mississippi informed, well, mainly keeping her from flying to New York, which was a common AIDS narrative that makes frequent appearances in film and stage theater. One character's gynecologist has told her that everyone is at risk, that, quote, sexuality is a chain that links each of us and becomes a chain of death. A male character remarks to his presumably heterosexual female friend, it's not the same for you as it is for me or Louis or Frank or Paolo or Max. I'm more and more frightened. Someone tells the patient, Quote, it could be a lot worse. You could have gotten the disease two years ago, but now so many scientists are working on it. The American team and the French team, everyone bucking for that Nobel Prize a few years down the road, that all you have to do is stay healthy for another year or two, 
and then there will be good treatment, real treatment, end quote. Finally, at one point, the characters, which include the patient's ex-lovers, realize that, quote, we are the family he's founded without meaning to, end quote. Rhetoric around one's chosen family over biological family remains to be a noted talking point in marginalized communities. Nonetheless, I can't help but to think that the way we live now could find a newfound resonance with those of us who lived through the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown. Without our historical memory of the AIDS epidemic, the story could read just like any other disease narrative. Could the magic mountain perhaps have inspired the way we live now? It's full of the angst that was in the air, but also the lack of information about the virus, its causes and its effects. The tone is a less fantastical, more naturalist version of Camus' The Plague or Jose Saramago's Blindness that could have only been written from an intimate place within the affected community. In her 2003 book of social theory regarding the pain of others, Sontag devotes the final section to exploring the deficiencies of images, particularly photographs, particularly war photographs, that depict human pain. With the proliferation and availability of photographs, why do they not cause us to act in ways that would alleviate suffering and its causes? What is the motive of people who capture such images on film? The final lines of the book invoke people who lived through tragedies such as the war crimes of Vietnam, the Holocaust, or the Spanish Civil War. Here are those final lines. We don't understand. We don't get it. We truly can't imagine what it was like. We can't imagine how dreadful, how terrifying war is and how normal it becomes can't understand, can't imagine. That's what every soldier and every journalist and aid worker and independent observer who has put in time under fire and had the luck to elude the death that struck down others nearby stubbornly feels. And they are right. The book is regarding the pain of others. Strangely, the way we live now ends with the same sort of bold proclamation about a given art form, instead of the negativistic realization that concludes regarding the pain of others, that is, that visual representations of suffering do not and cannot supplant lived experience, and thus may not be effective in preventing future atrocities. The short story ends with an optimistic ode to the merits of literature. Here's the final lines. I was thinking, Ursula said to Quentin, that the difference between a story and a painting or a photograph is that in a story, you can write, he's still alive. But in a painting or a photo, you can't show that word still. You can just show him being alive. He's still alive, Stephen said. I read those final lines in a number of ways. My first response was an empathic one. Given the autobiographical nature of Sontag's stories, I can't help but wonder who in her life was going through what the unnamed character experienced. 
in that sense, the line, he's still alive, represents a kind of hopefulness that someone she knows who contracted the virus was indeed still alive after being hospitalized for weeks and, if the story matches what happened in real life, had just recovered enough to be released from the hospital. He's still alive is really just a substitution for a sentence like, he's going to live, which millions of people could have related to in the 1980s, and probably can relate to since the year 2020. Considered non-autobiographically, even perhaps allegorically, however, Sontag concludes with a nod to her place in fiction writing as a whole. The merit of stories, of literature, is that certain words express something unique to literature, an art form that, in and of itself, is indeed still alive. Other examples of self-reflexive meta-narrative often also involve artists rendering themselves in the process of creating the very material that's being consumed by a reader, viewer, or listener. In the visual arts, Van Gogh's self-portrait as a painter and triple self-portrait by Norman Rockwell are apt examples, as both are self-portraits of the practice of self-portraiture. Many people find this practice egotistical and postmodern, while others may use the words ironic and cynical, two devices that allow the artist and consumer distance from sometimes difficult, uncomfortable, or critical content. Perhaps the style that Sontag uses throughout her story is designed to do just that, provide the reader a more detached vantage point during an intensely personal situation while still heralding the ability to use literature to document a particular experience. It's more than that, though. The ending presents itself as a gesture of gratitude for the continuation of life of a friend, for thousands of other survivors, for hope being fulfilled, for the role of the arts in telling others about what exactly happened, for the history and continuation of a form of communication and expression, for the gift of being able to make a literary contribution while being witness to the experience of marginalized individuals. In other words, the beauty of what Sontag accomplished in The Way We Live Now was in her ability to use the line, he's still alive, in multiple parallel contexts, a man living with AIDS in Reagan-era America, and a broader literary context that comments upon the art of words, stories, and literature itself. Taken in either context, the message provides a sense of catharsis while still inviting interpretation, rereading, and analysis of the entire work. I first came by Susan Sontag's name from the musical Rent. In the song La Vie Boheme, which is essentially an alternative, inclusive vision for society and song form, dining characters sing a toast with the line, To Sontag, to Sondheim, to anything taboo. Those were just names to me the first time I heard the musical, but years later, I would read a critical essay on Sontag, specifically on a critique of the phenomenon of Susan Sontag. The writer, Joseph Epstein, wrote backhandedly of her the following. 
Susan Sontag belongs less to the history of literature than to that of publicity. Outside of the movies and politics, Sontag must have been one of the most photographed women of the second half of the past century. Her obituary in the New York Times was accompanied by no fewer than four photographs, an instance of intellectual cheesecake. Tall and striking, with thickish black hair later showing a signature white streak at the front, she was the beautiful young woman every male graduate student regretted not having had a tumble with, a fantasy that would have been difficult to arrange since she was, with only an occasional lapse, a lesbian. If Susan Sontag had been a less striking woman when younger, her ideas would not have had the reach that they did. Deluded until the end, she had no notion that not literature, but self-promotion was her true métier. Epstein might as well have tempted me with a forbidden fruit. His tough words created even more intrigue around the late writer. Earlier this year, I finished on photography and regarding the pain of others within the span of several weeks, then turned to her recorded interviews. Obviously, I disagree with Epstein, as I find Sontag's nonfiction to be astute, timely, and timeless, while the woman herself is often uncanny in her ability to understand the present age in the context of what has come before. For example, a significant portion of On Photography is spent analyzing how human perception changed with the ability to photograph rather than paint or draw a person, place, or event in front of us. How seemingly overnight we developed the ability to easily chart lives through photographs, to see images of ourselves from the past. The way we live now offers a similar charting of the inner workings of a given scenario, and as the story's conclusion states, the literary arts provided the medium that was needed to express such an alternative point of view of the AIDS epidemic, that is, of a group of friends talking about the condition of their friend, the patient, rather than a more typical narrative told by or about the patient himself. At the time of publication, the virus had already claimed 50,000 lives and was still considered by many as an inevitable death sentence. Thus, the line, he's still alive, may have been a subversion of a prevalent narrative. Yet another of Sontag's divergences in the genre of illness narratives is the fact that she chooses not to name the disease throughout the story. In a sense, she does through words what Steven Spielberg did in Jaws, what Ridley Scott did in Alien, and what Merrick Sanchez would do in The Blair Witch Project. That is, to give footage of the monster little to no airtime as a way to create suspense and provide a cathartic climax. By not naming the disease, Sontag achieves the same effect while also accurately representing the hush that surrounded certain communities impacted by AIDS in the 1980s. In her book Illness as Metaphor from 1978, Sontag points out the ways society demonizes the chronically ill. In AIDS and its Metaphors from 1989, she continues the argument, writing that metaphors are what cause us to stigmatize the disease and its victims, which is yet another reason I would imagine that she never names the disease, nor allows any metaphors to form around it. 
prevalent in critical theory of the time was the belief that the emergence of AIDS ended the 70s era of sexual freedom. Sex was thus transformed into a new form of suicide or murder. Here's a line from The Way We Live Now. Quote, if you have a conscience, you can never make love, make love fully, as you'd been wantonly to do. But it's better than dying, said Frank. End quote. Apart from the story's resonant ending, one of its more interesting aspects recalls Sontag's earlier proclamation that personal writing, in her case short story writing, is best practiced in the bedroom. Throughout The Way We Live Now, the reader catches glimpses of the patient and his friends writing in their notebooks and diaries while lounging in their nightly beds. Like author, like character? The patient's bedridden writing is described as, quote, little more than the usual banalities about terror and amazement that this was happening to him, to him also, plus the usual remorseful assessments of his past life, his pardonable superficialities capped by resolves to live better, more deeply, more in touch with his work and his friends, and not to care so passionately about what people thought of him, interspersed with admonitions to himself that in this situation his will to live counted more than anything else, and that if he really wanted to live and trusted life and liked himself well enough, he would live. He would be an exception. End quote. Ultimately, Sontag subverts 80s-era illness narratives by making her story as much about personal self-discovery, hope, redemption, and life as it is about the greater angst and uncertainty surrounding the disease. Several commentators at the time of its publication remarked that the story was an empathic response from within the epidemic, a respite from the lesser-informed xenophobic actors in society. Five years after its publication in The New Yorker, Tony Kushner's play Angels in America would premiere in New York City and win the Pulitzer Prize. Perhaps the most notable character arc in Kushner's magnum opus is that of an AIDS patient who goes from screaming in Act 2, I'm dying, I hurt all over and wish I was dead, to, by the end of the play, it's January 1990. I've been living with AIDS for five years. I bless you. More life. The great work begins. In the mid-90s, Jonathan Larson's Rent would debut on Broadway. By that point, artists such as Larson had proclaimed the alternative narrative so much that its rhetoric became mainstream. During another moment from Rent's La Vie Boheme, the characters continue their toast by singing... To people living with, living with, living with, not dying from disease. Without the theatrics or fantasia of Angels in America or Rent, the way we live now necessitates its form as an inventive short story that's in line with Sontag's other intimate, bedroom-worthy fiction. In my reading, it was a reminder that the most personal tone can also be the most universal message. And although it may be presumptive to argue that a now little-known story 
had a profound impact on how people think about illness and the afflicted, it is valid to note the ways her perspective seems to have had a rippling effect in the decades since her death, especially in the arts. While a nonfiction work, like Regarding the Pain of Others, ends on a grim realization about the futility of visual representation, Sontag demonstrates how one expressive medium can overcome the limitations of another, in addition to limitations of the very narratives that medium has previously portrayed. If Susan Sontag's collected stories, as published in the book Debriefing, interests you, please consider purchasing a copy from the bookshop.org link in the show notes. Buying from here supports local bookshops and this podcast. The music heard on What Are You Reading is from the album Wallflower by percussionist Julian Loida. If you liked what you heard today, please consider following and leaving the What Are You Reading podcast a good rating and review as this helps us reach interested listeners. If you have extra feedback or an idea for a title or genre you'd like represented, you can contact me using the email address in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, happy reading!